I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. Just about everyone has some kind of category for a good thing somehow coming out of bad things. But in the story of the Bible, what God can do through suffering is more complex, dynamic, and beautiful than just simple serendipity. God does not cause or will suffering, but he can repurpose it. Nothing quite brings out the worst in humanity like a good old-fashioned crisis. The whole thing is kind of summed up to me anyway in this visual. A long line at the gas station. Anytime there are rumors of some coming inconvenience, whether it's a storm or snow, if you live in the Pacific Northwest, people are afraid of snow here even though it does snow, uh, power outages, whatever it might be, people start to hoard things for themselves. The conceit being, I have to take as much for me before other people get to it, whatever the it might be. So they fill up gas cans and they buy huge packages of bottled water or toilet paper. The toilet paper thing, uh, I admit, just baffles me. Why in the world is anyone worried about toilet paper? I'm sure many of you saw a clip making internet laps as of late in which someone has wisely dubbed audio from George Romero's Dawn of the Dead over a clip of Costco shoppers clawing at economy bundles of toilet paper. Honestly, using audio from Dawn of the Dead is more poignant than uh, many realize. Mr. Romero invented the modern movie zombie, not because he was as interested in giving someone the willies as much as he needed a decent cipher to make socio-political satires. And really, Romero's core idea is not unlike, say, William Golding's in Lord of the Flies, which is that when reduced to base survival mode, human beings are violent, selfish, and depraved. They claw at the plastic of toilet paper that hasn't even made it off the dolly. Shameless. And it's not hard to understand why, really. When people are worried and anxious about the future, they are not often at their best. Open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6. We're in a short mini-series at the moment in this new and admittedly compromised way of doing church. Ordinarily, you guys know, we're in an ongoing study of the Gospel of Matthew, or we're learning a new spiritual discipline from the, from the life of Jesus and putting it into practice in our communities. But something has happened that no matter how you look at it or feel about it is affecting nearly everyone on the globe. One morning this week, my six-year-old, who misses school and friends and the ordinary rhythms of life, he mused over a bowl of cereal in the morning, I wish coronavirus was just a dream. And I told him I'm sure many, many people wish the very same thing. And even though there are many people for whom the actual virus itself is not very dangerous, all of our lives have been disrupted in profound and, and likely lasting ways. Some people are sick. Uh, people we know all over the world are dying. People are losing their jobs. The future seems at best hazy and at worst scary. We have never been an online church. Uh, we're not into that sort of thing personally. But we've had to, like everyone else, migrate a church, in our case with little to no online emphasis, to an entirely digital internet experience. And here you all are. Some of you right now are doing fine as best as you can. You're doing your best to care for others and stay home, practice social distancing, all that. 
Others of you, we know, are hurting right now, you're worried about the future, you're afraid. And in the midst, in the midst of this big upheaval and unwanted transition for our church, we decided to spend a handful of these first few online weeks talking about how we can best embody the teachings and lifestyle of Jesus in a time when nothing feels normal. Last week we talked about fear. And I realize not everyone feels afraid, and maybe that's good or bad, depending. But all of us have been interrupted. All of us are being inconvenienced in ways that seem trivial or ways that seem significant. And maybe you feel as if the disruption to your life is nominal at best. But an interruption is an interruption. And much as we like to quantify and qualify pain, the validity of pain, pain is pain. But pain is also part and parcel of the human experience. And so are interruptions and inconveniences in life. Last week I read this quote from C.S. Lewis who wrote, The great thing, if one can, is to stop regarding all the unpleasant things as interruptions of one's own or real life. The truth is, of course, that what one calls the interruptions are precisely one's real life. So I want to take a second look at a text that we've already unpacked in detail in our study of Matthew, but I want to bring it to bear on present circumstances. So with that, let's read Matthew chapter 6, beginning with verse 25. Jesus says, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So think about this. Worry reveals worship. The things that you worry about reveal the things that you worship. So for example, if you worry about finances, it may be because you worship financial security. If you worry about your reputation, it may be because you worship status. If you worry about your next meal, you may worry you may worship food. If you worry about sickness, you may worship health. If you worry about your comfort, it may be because you worship your comfort and stability. When Jesus uses the word that your Bible translates as worry, he uses the Greek verb merinao. And he uses the word six times in this passage. Interestingly, merinao can be translated positively, as in like uh, when someone cares for something in a good way. But in this passage, as you may have guessed, he uses it negatively. And it means internal disturbance at the emotional and psychological level that disrupts life. Another way of translating the word would be an anxious endeavor to secure one's needs. 
So, Jesus starts to unpack uh, metaphors, analogies, and questions. In verse 26, he says, Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns. He goes on to say, like, Why do you worry about clothes? Look at the flowers of the field. They obviously aren't concerned with clothes. So, having broached the topic of worry, Jesus to, begins to unpack the futility of such a thing. And he does so by pragmatic means, saying essentially, Worrying does nothing, so what's the point? And then he uses very tactile examples from nature to reinforce his point. Jesus does this as an appeal to God's providence, which is a word that describes the way that God does or does not govern and operate in the universe. After all, every disciple of Jesus believes that God is involved in the world, but the question is how exactly? In what ways does God interact with or intervene in our lives. So, for clarity's sake, bear with me for just a couple of minutes and let's take a very short detour into systematic theology. Now, there are two primary understandings of God's providence. There are all sorts of nuance within each of those two views, but in very broad strokes, here are the two. The first is called meticulous providence. And this is the idea that every single thing that happens in the universe, whether it's good or evil or neutral, from job promotions to the flight of dust particles to the abuse of children, all of it is determined and willed by God. Now, none of the earliest church fathers believed this, and the church rejected this view for hundreds of years. And Even after Augustine proposed meticulous providence around the 5th century or so, this idea was met with immediate pushback. It was denounced by an official church council. It was the whole thing. But eventually, obviously, the idea caught on, in particular during the Protestant Reformation by John Calvin and Martin Luther around the 15th and 16th centuries. And today, lots of people actively believe this very thing. And many others talk and pray as though they believe it, saying things like, well, remember God has a plan, or remember God is in control. But many of those same people, if you press them, they would be reticent to attribute something like the abuse of children to God's direct unilateral control. Now, the second broad view is something called general providence. And this is the idea that God is absolutely involved in the universe. He's engaging with and interacting with us and creation and the world. But he does not exercise unilateral control because he has given human beings and spiritual beings, what we would call angels or demons, he has given us both unique autonomy and a will. So you and I often choose things that go against God's will or what God wants. And for the sake of our freedom, that we can actually get to choose to authentically love God and engage in a real relationship with him, God does not override those decisions, even if the result is evil. In this sense, there are often all sorts of things that happen in our world that God doesn't like, that he didn't choose, that he doesn't control, that he doesn't will or plan or ordain. But that doesn't mean that God isn't active and involved. God is at war with evil. He is at work in the world doing good and even bringing good out of the evil that he does not control. God is infinitely wise and creative so that even in a universe where we have been given a say, he can bring, he can bring good things out of bad things. And of course, ultimately, God will have the final say in restoring the world to rights. So one way that I like to summarize this idea is by saying God is in charge but not in control. 
If you've been at Van City for any length of time, you know probably that we wholeheartedly reject the idea that God controls and determines everything that happens, but we do affirm God's providence. Now, why does all that matter? Because in his command to relinquish worry, Jesus appeals to God's providence. So when Jesus draws his disciples' attention to the birds or to the flowers and to God's care for them, um, what, what is he saying exactly? Now, Jesus isn't saying, hey, listen, God's in control. Everything happens for a reason. Everything works out in the end. God will definitely give you food and clothes, so don't worry about it. It doesn't take a theologian to work that one out. Are there people in the world who follow Jesus and yet have no food or basic resources? Yes, the obvious answer is yes. So if Jesus isn't promising, I feel like this is almost like a Blue's Clues type of situation, or uh, they do this on Daniel Tiger as well. They ask uh, non-rhetorical questions to the audience and then pause and wait for the answer. I, I, I don't think I've ever seen a kid actually answer. They just sit there in silence. So maybe you guys will break that tradition. Are there people with no food or basic resources? Yes! So that's not anything to celebrate, by the way. Anyway, uh, if Jesus isn't promising that his disciples will have basic provision, what is he getting at? Let's keep working through the text. After all that, Jesus reiterates his first warning. In verse, look down at verse 31. He says, So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? And his reason is because the pagans do that. Now, in the broad sense, the word pagan refers to someone who is outside the family of God. It's not necessarily a pejorative term in and of itself. It's just a, con a contextual thing. But remember, Jesus particular context. At the time of this teaching, as the first century in Israel, the non-Jewish, non-God-fearing pagans all around Jesus and his disciples were the Romans. So Jesus is saying, who worries about money and resources? The oppressors do that. The lavish, opulent, corrupt, pagan oppressors. And they acted as a living example of what Jesus' disciples are not to be. Because Jesus' disciples are not pagans. They, unlike the Romans, are in an active relationship with the living God who knows them and sees them and cares about them. They have every reason not to worry. So in verse 32, Jesus points this out. Pagans run after all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. So, he says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So seek two things, God's kingdom and God's righteousness. Now I realize that both of those terms are often a, a little fuzzy for a great many of us, so let's try to clarify them a little bit. That phrase, kingdom of God, can be translated simply as God's rule or God's reign. Put simply, the kingdom of God is the area of God's active and realized rule, meaning the kingdom of God is the active exercising of God's power and authority. The kingdom of God is the space in which God's will is done, or where what God wants to happen, happens. So this could be in the life of a man or a woman or a child. It could be in a neighborhood. It could be in a church or a city or a school system, a place of business. Uh, one day it will be true over the entire cosmos. It is a space in which God is on the throne, so to speak. God is king, and he is actively exercising his power and authority in and through others to the degree that what he wants to happen actually happens. That is the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. 
Now, God's righteousness describes God's will or what God wants, meaning those who seek God's righteousness are those who conform their lives to what God wants. And what God wants is being, at this point in the text, it's being revealed by Jesus in his set of teachings. In other words, God's righteousness describes right living, those who are obedient to God in the way that they think and talk and live. And God's kingdom is where the effects of that way of life are made manifest in the world. So, all that to say, it sounds like a lot of technical stuff, but really all that to say, seeking God's kingdom and righteousness simply means practicing the way of Jesus together. But of course, Jesus adds this interesting promise to the end of it. He says, seek the first the kingdom and righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Which is weird. After all, if Jesus means we'll receive provision, if that's what he means by all this will be added to you, then uh, there's kind of a problem. If we're completely honest or even logically consistent, it just seems like that isn't the case. But think about Jesus' analogies. He uses birds and flowers in particular. See, we tend to, th re we tend to read Jesus as saying, hey, look, birds have food to eat and flowers look pretty, so God will do that for you. But the problem is that bad things happen to birds. Uh, in Jesus' day, they were actually bought and sold for food and as animal sacrifices in the temple. And Jesus knew all that. It's not like he temporarily forgot that bad things happen to birds. Hey, Jesus himself in this teaching says that flowers are here today and tomorrow thrown into the fire. And yet, even in spite of the fact that bad things happen to birds and flowers are thrown into the fire, birds and flowers do not chase after worry or concern or anxiety. In fact, they're incapable of doing those things. So the point in Jesus saying, all of these things will be given to you as well, is, I think, not a promise of basic provision, but it is the promise that you can become the type of person that is free from worry. You can become the type of person who values the things that cannot be taken away and is not anxious about the things that you cannot control. What's interesting is that as much as Christian culture loves this idea of seek the kingdom and then you get stuff, that isn't the end of the teaching. That's not the last thing Jesus says. In fact, the last part of the teaching starts in verse 34 where he says, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. It ends with a promise that you will have trouble, which is classic Jesus. Elsewhere, he tells his disciples, again, in this world, you will have trouble. No one wants to hear that. No matter what precautions you take in order to avoid the lurking phantom of suffering in your life, suffering will find you. No matter how hard you work, how healthy you become, how wonderful your family is, something could come along and ruin all that. No amount of planning or finance or attempted control can stave off bereavement or sickness or betrayal or financial ruin or an innumerable host of troubles and tragedies from creeping into the comfort and security of your life like hostile invaders. Life, we know, is fragile, forever subject to forces beyond our control, and on a long enough timeline, the survival rate for everyone drops to zero. Almost everyone agrees that suffering in life is a given. So we come up with ways to explain why suffering exists and what to do with it. 
And there are, are at least five broad worldviews that address suffering. It's not all of them, but in general, with broad strokes, five main interpretations of pain and suffering. First, there's the Hindu worldview. This is where you get the concept often called karma. Thank you, Earl Hickey. And the basic idea is that you get what you deserve, and you deserve what you get. What goes around comes around. In sociology, it's also called a, mor a moralistic view because suffering is understood as a byproduct of morality or, or lack of morality. And next, you have the Buddhist worldview. All suffering and pain flow from desire. Thus, the one who eliminates desire eliminates suffering. And to do so, you have to follow the four noble truths of the Buddha, which is all life is suffering. The cause of suffering is desire. Suffering ends when desire is extinguished. And that's only achieved by following the Eightfold Path to Enlightenment. The third worldview is the Islamic worldview. Many streams within the Islamic worldview place a strong emphasis on the idea of fate or destiny. Uh, every unfolding event in world history is understood to be the will of Allah. And this is a view shared by ancient pagan understandings from the Nordic and European religions. And of course, we have similar theological traditions in the Calvinistic wing of the church today. This is often called or criticized as a fatalistic worldview because whoever is fated to suffer has no avenue to avoid suffering. The fourth worldview I like to call the dark crystal worldview, or if you want to be boring about it, you can call it the dualistic worldview. The idea is that the world is a cosmic battlefield between equal but opposing forces of good and evil. And the key to all that is balance and equilibrium between the two things, healing the crystal, so to speak. Without that balance, we're bound to suffer. Now, if you're paying attention to those first few sets of worldviews, you may have noticed that each of them has at least some shade of the truth, even if it's a slight shade of the truth, but none of them encapsulate the teachings of Jesus. But most of the people, I would wager a guess, most of the people at Van City Church were raised in none of those views, but more so in something that we might call the Western secular worldview, if not uh, directly by inference or the culture around us. Now it finds its roots in something called naturalism. This is the idea that human beings and the world itself are something of a developmental anomaly. It's come to fruition without any involvement from a creator god or a higher power of any kind. This whole thing is one insane streak of what you might describe as happy accidents, as one of my uh, favorite lyricists writes, a phenomenal, nominal nothing. Thus, in that worldview, pain and suffering are as devoid of purpose as life itself. Infamous scientific boogeyman Richard Dawkins puts it like this. He says, the total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation. In a, in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Now. Most of us would not put it quite like Dawkins, but ask an average American about what they're after in life. Many might say something about being happy or being comfortable or being safe or secure, but what happens to the individual whose ultimate end is comfort and happiness when they meet suffering on their happy little road of life? If the carrots we chase after are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, 
what happens when those things are taken from us. When life, for example, is interrupted by a cancer diagnosis. Or when someone you love dies unexpectedly. What happens when liberty is silenced by the iron bars of a jail cell or a concentration camp or your own home becomes a den of isolation and loneliness. What happens when freedom is little more than fleeing your home as a refugee uh, in a civil war. What happens when the pursuit of happiness languishes in the swamp of despair or when you are sad and you don't know why or when life becomes an endless panorama of disappointment and heartache and failure. What then is the great purpose of life? Or, that all sounds really dra dramatic, so lower the stakes quite a bit. What is life when the ordinary rhythms of everything are dashed to pieces by a sudden and unprecedented pandemic? When you can no longer visit friends, or go to church, or go to work? When people you love are getting sick, or losing their jobs? In the Western mind, Pain and suffering are, at best, an interruption on the road to life's purpose to be happy. At worst, they are an insurmountable obstacle that snuffs the very wick of life's essence. If we can't be happy and safe and secure, what point is there in anything? The thing is, even if somebody acknowledges that suffering can, in some cases, improve our character. Many people are willing to acknowledge that. The Western secular worldview lacks any mechanism with which to realize it. And in the end, it becomes about finding new and better ways to avoid suffering or to end it as quickly as possible. So the Western world is poised to provide you with lots and lots of methods of staving off the horror of hardship. And some of them are, frankly, quite nice. We have seat belts and airbags for the car wreck. We have insurance for the flood and the fire. We have vitamins for your immune system. And again, I like those things. I wear a seat belt every time. Thank you very much. Um, I take vitamins in the morning. Why not mitigate and minimize hardship if you can? I think that that's a great idea. But no matter how clever the hiding place, suffering will find us eventually. And what then? Mortified, many of us run toward medication and distraction when these first few sets of uh, provisions end up failing on us. And so we look for name brands or curating your image and fighting off insecurity by going to social media or smartphone screens. We look to television and pornography for curbing loneliness um, drugs and alcohol to distract us and medicate trauma that we aren't dealing with. Some relationship or some career as our last great hope to find meaning and satisfaction in life. Or in other words, to run from suffering. But, time and time again, the authors of scripture emphasize the unique ability of pain and suffering to catalyze growth and maturity. In fact, the scriptures use a recurring metaphor for pain as a fire that refines us. Look at this from Psalm 66. For you, God, tested us. You refined us like silver. You brought us into prison and laid burdens on our backs. You let, our, you let people ride over our heads. We went through fire and water. But you brought us to a place of abundance. Or look at these passages from the prophets. See, I have refined you, though not as silver, I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. 
Or therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I will refine and test them, for what else can I do because of the sin of my people? Here's another from Zechariah. It says, This third I will put into the fire. I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, They are my people. And they will say, The Lord is our God. This is not just the Old Testament. In Mark we read that everyone will be salted with fire. But maybe the most clarifying passage is from 1 Peter. He writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus the Messiah. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who, through faith, are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief, and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus the King is revealed. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And even though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the, re- the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So, here's the thing. Some of you have known and will know profound suffering in your lives. Some of you are experiencing it right now. And others of you feel as though your life, to be honest, has not been marked by much trauma to speak of. But, please listen to me when I say this, we tend to assign a kind of arbitrary arbitrary gradation to pain and suffering. So we put things like, you know, the death of a loved one at the top of that scale, and we put things like, I don't know, depression or stress, anxiety, losing plans that were important to you, being inconvenienced down at the bottom of that scale. And it's, it's certainly true that there are different types of traumatic things with different types of effects on different types of people, but pain is pain. And while it may sound prissy and entitled when juxtaposed against other problems in the world, the disruption of your life can be a painful thing. Whether it's being laid off during a pandemic or struggling to learn overnight how to homeschool a small child, or feeling like a failure, or feeling like afraid, you're, you're afraid for the future, or feeling lonely or isolated. Earlier this week, the Harvard Business Review published an interview with David Kessler, who is the world's foremost expert on grief. And in the interview, he argues this. One unfortunate byproduct of the self-help movement is we're the first generation to have feelings about our feelings. We tell ourselves things like, I feel sad, but I shouldn't feel that. Other people have it worse. We can, we should, stop at the first feeling. I feel sad. Let me go for five minutes to feel sad. Your work is to feel your sadness and fear and anger whether or not someone else is feeling something. Fighting it doesn't help because your body is producing the feeling. If we allow the feelings to happen, they'll happen in an orderly way. And it empowers us. Then we're not victims. This week I was doing something that's becoming more and more routine, which is to reach out to other pastors and churches and find out how everyone else is working to keep things alive 
during all this. And a friend of mine who pastors uh, a church in San Francisco summarized the way that I've been feeling. He said, I feel like we've had to plant a church all over again, overnight, and it's not even the kind of church that I would ever want to plant. Abby and I were walking with our kids around the neighborhood last Sunday. It was uh, early evening, and we saw Allie in, our, in her front yard. Hi, Allie. And we stopped to talk to her more than six feet at a distance, relax. And I realized in that conversation, I looked at my watch and I thought, man, ordinarily on a Sunday like this, at this time, I'd be seeing Allie, but it would be at church with the rest of you guys. Hugging people, shaking hands, face to face, laughing, real voices in a real room, communion and worship and food and celebration. No one signed up for an online church. And honestly, I'm not panicked, I'm not feeling fretful, I'm not despairing. But the future is something of a haze at the moment, and it grieves me. It's been really painful. For many of you, things feel even more dire. You've been laid off from your job or furloughed. You're not sure what's next, and you're afraid. All of our lives have been disrupted. It's not what anyone wanted, and it's painful. And God did not engineer your pain. He didn't plan it under the pretense of some mysterious divine purpose, a virus that wipes out sick and old, older people, a, a quarantine that isolates people from other people and costs them their jobs and closes churches. None of these things are what God wants. But God is very creative. It is perhaps the greatest feat of cosmic subversion because according to the scriptures, the enemy, Satan, is the one who comes to steal and kill and destroy. But God takes our pain and he can repurpose it to do us good. In the scriptures, there are several ways suffering can shape us for the good. It transforms character as fire transforms gold. Pain has the unique ability to change and grow and mature you if you let it. Suffering tests you. It reveals what's really inside. And in the end, it can improve you and enrich the value of everything worthwhile in your life. And there are several ways that suffering can do this. First, pain can deepen your love for God. C.S. Lewis described pain as God's megaphone to a deaf world. Evil is not God's will, but it is great at getting our attention. Suffering reorients the way that we relate to everything good in our lives by exposing what good things have become for us God's. In other words, by exposing what loves are out of order in our lives. On this, I believe Buddha is actually onto something. Suffering can result from desire, for better or worse, but I would argue that it has more to do with our desire of the wrong things, or for the right things, but in the wrong order. I doubt the problem is that you love your family and your work and your dream too much. Instead, it's more likely that you love God too little when juxtaposed against those things. And an improper ordering of loves is a path to inevitable anxiety. When God is not our ultimate love, we will always live in fear because everything else can be taken away. But Jesus can never be taken away. And to believe that, to actually believe this to be true is to cast off the shackles of anxiety. And that's how we obey Jesus' command, do not worry. And to believe that requires a proper ordering of loves. Next, 
Suffering can, when we allow it, strengthen our relationship and intimacy with God really like nothing else can. It can reorder our loves. Suffering strips us of pretense. It drives us helplessly and desperately toward prayer, and it reveals God to be the true refuge and comfort that He really is. If you've ever gone through something really rough, or if you've known someone that, who has, maybe you feel this way, if you've talked to someone who's described the way that times of intense suffering become uh, proportionally times of deep intimacy with God. The next way suffering can grow us is that it can deepen your character. In suffering, the weaknesses of our characters or personality flaws, they're often brought painfully to our own attention and certainly to the attention of the people around us. Suffering becomes kind of like cruel hands that wring us like a sponge, and the very worst of us floods out like foul, murky water. With all our ugly, hidden stuff exposed, We've no means of disguising the truth and, and often no strength left to fake it. It's why fasting can produce such intense spiritual formation, honestly, because you put yourself through small voluntary bouts of discomfort, and when you do that, it reveals a lot of ugly shortcomings in your personality. And then, once they're on the surface and you know that they're there, all that's left is to give up and embrace them or choose to take the very hard road toward change. The suffering itself is often entirely beyond our control, but our response is always entirely within our control. Suffering can also deepen your humility and empathy. Pain inevitably strips us of pride. It reminds us of how very little falls within the microscopic dominion of our own control. In relinquishing our desperate pursuit to control the things that we cannot, we are humbled. You are not in control. You never were. This is deeply humbling, but in a good way. And it enables us to be of use to others who suffer. Those of us who have suffered very little are often trite or cliche or impatient with people in pain. But having been there yourself changes everything. I think of 2 Corinthians 1 in which Paul writes, The God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble... One great meaning we can take in our suffering is knowing that God can use it to benefit other people. And finally, suffering, ironically, can deepen our joy. Because pain often reveals what we take for granted. It exposes the endless depth of our entitlement. But what happens when you strip away the things that we take for granted? What can happen in our pain is a great revival of appreciation for the things in life, even things like the cup of coffee in the morning, the groceries in our refrigerator, the roof over our head, the people that we love. A sense of loss can cultivate gratitude. After we survive the night of suffering, the next morning our breakfast tastes better than any meal we've ever had. And somehow, for all our pain, we become more joyful than before we hurt. So suffering can do all this, but not necessarily. No amount of pain will accomplish these things in us automatically. Suffering can either form us or destroy us. The, the same sun that melts wax hardens clay kind of thing. So one person endures the death of a loved one or goes through a divorce or faces cancer or goes off to war and they come out of that experience on the other side deeply connected to God, 
humbled, more at peace than before, more kind, more mature than ever before. But then another person goes through the same exact thing and they come out more angry or bitter or depressed or addicted and never regain traction in their lives. So much depends on how we suffer. So to end, we have written a basic rule of life in this social distancing season of our church. If you're new to Van City, a rule of life is something that we've been discussing in detail for a while. But it's obviously been radically affected by circumstances beyond our control, so that conversation got disrupted to some extent. But a rule of life is like a code. It's a set of spiritual rhythms and priorities by which one lives. So this, what I'm about to read to you guys, is an invitation for you if you call Van City home. It's not a requirement, not by any means, but it is an invitation to join us, to live by this code, to, which we believe is taken from the teachings and lifestyle of Jesus and informed by wisdom and best practices so that we can take this painful time and deliberately use it and allow God to do us good through it. Here is the rule of life. We rise with scripture and pray. We begin each morning in the quiet with God, before work and obligations, before our kids wake, before we've reached for a screen or device, we open the scriptures and we pray. We refuse to abandon community. Though loving others well keeps us at a distance for the time being, we connect with our Van City communities twice a week via digital platforms to listen to teaching, open the scriptures, talk, pray, and take communion. We adhere to the discipline of worship. Worship is crucial in the life of the apprentice for cultivating joy, intimacy with God's Spirit, and perspective. So we dedicate time to worship via listening to and singing along with recordings, singing a cappella, or playing an instrument. We cultivate the discipline of gratitude. We train ourselves to direct and redirect our attention to that for which we are grateful. We write them down. We, we list them aloud around our dinner table every evening. We recall them thankfully each morning before God. Next is the sharpening of focus. In this time of panic, hysteria, and isolation, we choose a life-giving activity to which we can dedicate complete focus, drawing ourselves out of the chaos of the outside world. We do this through reading, or creating art, or making things, or gardening, or carpentry, even the simple diversion of a game or a puzzle. Next, we limit the intake of news and media. While the news cycle can be helpful and informative, it is also a for-profit industry, often curated to exploit our biases and weaknesses. Knowing this, we limit our intake of news media to twice daily or less, at scheduled times, and on imposed time limits. Next, we reject escapism. In a time when most of our lives have been disrupted in profound ways, we realize the enemy will exploit our vulnerabilities. Knowing our own weaknesses, we refuse to indulge excess in the form of alcohol and drugs, social media, smartphone feeds, internet use, television, food, and the like. Next is prayer and fasting. Much of the world is sick, hurting, and afraid. We long to cultivate deeper reservoirs of empathy and to see God's healing and restoration made manifest in the world around us. We schedule a weekly rhythm of fasting from breakfast and lunch, using our hunger to direct us to pray and respond to the great need all around us. Next is family, even at a social distance. We prioritize and schedule rhythms of relational connection via the means at our disposal. 
We establish recurring times to connect with close friends, family members, and those in our community through phone calls and video conferencing. Now, to end, think back to that beautiful haunting command from Jesus. Do not worry. Really, what's the point? The one thing that matters most can't be taken from you. So why worry? Dallas Willard put it this way. He said, people who are ignorant of God live to eat and drink and dress. Their lives are filled with corresponding anxiety and anger and depression about how they will look and how they will fare. By contrast, those who understand Jesus and his Father know that provision has been made for them. Though they work, they do not worry about things on earth. Instead, they are always seeking first the kingdom. That is, they place top priority on identifying and involving themselves in what God is doing and in the kind of rightness he has. All else needed is provided. So, my encouragement for you in the coming weeks and for myself is to refuse to relinquish your grip on hope. Not flimsy optimism, not you know, thinking the best and hanging in there, but hope. And I would define hope by the grounded expectation of coming good based on the character of God. A hope believing that though God is not responsible for evil, He can use it for good. That Jesus, the Spirit of God in you, cannot be taken from you. Earlier I mentioned that Harvard Business Review interview with David Kessler, uh, and the article itself is titled, That Discomfort You're Feeling is Grief. And I read that article after working on this teaching all week, and I was so struck by how many of the wise, telling, and really comforting ideas were consistent with the teachings of Jesus I had been in all week long. Kessler argues that anticipatory grief is the mind going to the future and imagining the worst. To calm yourself, you want to come into the present. Realize that in the present moment, nothing you've anticipated has happened. In this moment, you're okay. You have food. You're not sick. You can also think about how to let go of what you can't control. What your neighbor is doing is out of your control. Finally, it's a good time to stock up on compassion. Everyone will have different levels of fear and grief, and it manifests in different ways. I thought, man, all of that sounds very familiar. Remember, do not fear does not mean that there isn't anything to be afraid of. But in rejecting anxiety, coming into the present, letting tomorrow worry about tomorrow, in practicing the way of Jesus, centering ourselves in God's presence in the here and now, abiding in a rule of life, rhythms of discipline, spiritual formation to utilize this painful time, we can establish ourselves firmly on that which cannot be taken away and finally get some peace. Thanks for listening to Van City Church. You can connect with us or find more teachings and available resources from Van City at www.vancity.church. You can also support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.